prior to this working on stick frame, you know, it was a relatively easy process because your architects know exactly what you're building. Your engineers are like, hey, we've done these details a thousand times and nothing's changing on this one. And with going into the space of mass timber and more sustainable projects, everyone was kind of like, what is this, you know, and, and how do we design this and how do we actually build this? And the last three years has been tough, but I think rewarding. And it's been especially rewarding now that we actually have our first project going vertical and we're on our fifth floor. We get to see a building actually be built. Welcome to the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast, a show about human environments and how they can be used as a force for good. Conversations that educate and inspire people looking for a different way to do real estate. I'm Neil Collins, and on this episode, I'm joined by Nate Hellbach, the founder and CEO of The Neutral Project, a new development company out of Madison in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that is focused on using mass timber as a building material for residential and mixed-use projects. I was in a meeting a couple weeks ago with a successful business owner turned developer, and he was lamenting at how tough real estate development is. And you know what? He's right. There are so many different levels of complexity in this industry. It's not only a team sport, but you also have to interface with regulatory bodies, investors, lenders, and the public. Without a doubt, there is a high degree of risk that comes along with it. That's why for many developers, even pulling off a conventional project is hard enough. But we know that the industry must evolve and this type of development and construction has to change. We have to begin to build with materials that are better for both human health and the environment. I mean, this is why I love the Living Building Challenge, because it is a rigorous certification that forces you to think about a myriad of ways that the built environment can be done differently. But there's a reason why there aren't many of these projects in the world. They're simply too costly to build. So one of the hot topics that I found in the development world is mass timber. This is a type of building material that is being produced from sustainably managed forests that can help to reduce the total carbon footprint of both the construction and operations of a building. On this episode, Nate Helbach and I discussed why he decided to create a development firm exclusively focused on mass timber the benefits he sees with this type of building material, and the projects that his company, The Neutral Project, has in the works. Before getting into this episode, I want to get into the segment of the show called our Ecosystem Directory Spotlight. This directory is our Rolodex of companies and organizations that are purpose-aligned that we work with to bring regenerative projects to life across the country. This directory is one way we help people like yourself easily find the resources that you need in order to create healthy, resilient, 
in beautiful homes, habitats, and communities. It can be found on Latitude's website at chooselatitude.com forward slash ecosystem dash directory. The directory member I want to highlight today also hails from Wisconsin, and that is the architecture firm, the Kubala Washapko Architects, known as TKWA. This is an extremely impressive architecture firm that designs with a sense of holism in order to create spaces and buildings that supports and enhances both human activity and natural living systems. They use the pattern language to guide their designs, which I find is pretty rare amongst design firms. You can check out their stunning projects on their website at tkwa.com. Now, without further ado, let's get into it with Nate Helbach from The Neutral Project. Nate, it, it's a pleasure to have you on to the podcast today. We've been following the Neutral Project through our partner, Mark Voss, uh, out of Madison. And so this is just an opportunity that I really wanted to learn more, really, around how a firm like yours comes into existence. But I, I love to, to really jump into these stories around what your background is and where you came from. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. To give you a little background on kind of where my story begins with real estate, I uh, was working for my dad actually back in middle school, and he owned a bunch of small little projects around Madison that were like four and eight units and just doing maintenance and stuff and found myself really liking buildings and exploring how they get put together. And so kind of early 20s, decided to go work for a uh, developer and doing a lot of kind of just traditional stick frame construction or it was two floors of concrete and four floors of stick frame. And it was like great experience and good learning ground, but kind of got to a point where I was really getting kind of bored of the same old, same old. And we had built about 2000 of these units. And it was one of those things where I was like, why are we doing this? You know, why are we building these kind of same exact buildings just in different locations? And had the idea of neutral project actually back in school. And the idea was basically to build carbon neutral buildings and to make these really kind of cool, intimate spaces where people want to live there and, and stay there for decades. And so in 2020, decided to break off from that developer that I had been working for and go and start my own company and kind of dust the business plan off the shelf and start neutral project. And so well, that, let, let's dive in there then. Um, what were you going to school for and why, why did this theme around carbon neutrality come up? Yeah. So it was, I was going to school for finance and sustainability. And the idea really came from just looking at the problem of this like existential threat of carbon change and climate change. And, you know, you look at it and you're like, okay, well, let's really dig into why is it an, an existential threat and where are the pollutants coming from? And I don't think people realize this, but 39% of those pollution comes from buildings. And it's either from the construction or it's from the operations of buildings. And so the thesis was like, okay, well, let's fix this problem. And do you feel like that was really coming up in, in a finance 
program, like it, you said finance and sustainability. So already I think you might be pigeonholed in, into that answer, but what were you seeing really around that time in the real estate development space? Like, do you yeah. find that you're, you've got a, a large cohort of people that are doing and talking about the same things or, or do you find that it's still pretty nascent? I think it's still relatively niche. And I think there's a lot of people talking about it, just like there's a lot of people talking about climate change. And I don't think there's as many people that are actually kind of acting on it and really understanding what the solution is. Because I mean, it's such a big problem that people, I think, look at it and they're like, well, there's no solution. So we're just going to carry on. And I think there's a lot of, especially older developers that really have been doing this process of development for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And they want to stick to it because it's been making money and it's been a good business, which is understandable. But I think there needs to be change where people come in and say, what we've been doing is harmful for the planet and it's not sustainable and we need a new paradigm of development. And so I think there are some, I mean, you're a definite colleague and there's also like people like Mark who are excited about sustainability and excited about other construction methods that would be more sustainable. But I think it's a relatively niche space as of right now. You know, one of the things that we see is a lot of people, what I like to call, they're throwing spaghetti at the wall right now. I mean, it is like, we're going to do AI, robotic built structures. You know, it's just like tons of innovative ideas. And I'm curious, what was that trajectory for you that was like, I'm, we're going to do this kind of development and here's how we're going to create partnerships. Here's how we're going to do sourcing. Like what was that assessment process? Like how did you end up deciding to go in the direction that you did? Yeah. So really what I was looking at when back when I was writing my thesis about this was breaking down the building with a first principles approach and looking at all the constituent elements of a building. So what do you need for, the utilities? What do you need for your site plan? What do you need for your structure? What do you need for your interiors? And then looking at what is the most carbon efficient materials we can use for every one of those elements. And really, it was just from that methodology that I landed on mass timber, which is what we now use for our structures. And then looking at other materials and seeing how we could maybe get a little bit more efficiency from like the operations of the building. And so that's how I landed on Passive House and that design principle and using those design principles for all of our buildings to date. And so it was really just from the initial kind of like thesis of how do we reduce the most embodied carbon, which if people don't know what that is, it's basically all the carbon that's coming from construction. And then how do we reduce ongoing operational carbon, which is the carbon that's actually coming from operations of the building. And looking at those two through those lenses and trying to understand what materials can we use and what design methods can we institute to be able to reduce both of those was kind of the decision methodology. You mentioned two other terms, mass timber and passive house. And and I think generally this is an audience that's going to know a lot about both of those subjects. But for the people that are just tuning in, let's start with mass timber. What What is it? You know, I think a lot of people are starting to, to hear 
cross laminated timber, but there there's this like whole slew of things going on in the mass timber industry and it'd be great to, to learn more about it. Yeah. Yeah. So mass timber is kind of just a generic word. Like if you said a car, you wouldn't be describing a specific brand like Ford or, or GMC. So mass timber as a term encompasses a lot of things. Cross laminated timber is one segment and that's what's typically used right now in a lot of buildings. And if people don't know what that is, is you're basically taking big two by eights, you're finger joining them together to have them be 60, 40, 30 feet long. And then you're cross laminating them back and forth to get to your compressive strength that you need for a building. But there's other kind of subsets of mass timber within the space. And those are glue lamb, nail laminated timber, uh, and then several others. But the, the big kind of two right now are cross laminated timber and glue lamb. And the reason it's so sustainable, and I'm sure I've had people come up to me and say, you're, you're tearing down trees. That's not sustainable. We should leave trees in the forest. And what the answer is, is if we do proper forestation and use what we have responsibly, we actually can be more sustainable using those materials that are naturally grown because it's really the only material that we have right now. There's other materials that people are thinking about and creating that might supersede mass timber. But right now it's the only kind of regenerative material because concrete and steel are not. And so the reason it's so sustainable is if you get the timber from a forest that's properly forested and it can be certified through like SFI or FSC and it goes through manufacturing then into the building, you're actually kind of creating this carbon sink. And one of the things we're going to talk about, I think later on in the podcast is what happens at the end of life when we tear these buildings down and we're all dead and the next generation and our grandkids are tearing them down. What happens to the panels? Do they just go to the dumpster and they decompose and the carbon releases or can we actually reuse them and design for reuse? But to answer the second question about passive house, passive house is I think the simplest way to describe it is you're putting a jacket on your building and a nice kind of big north face parka goes around your building and you're creating this really tight insulated building that uses less energy hmm. with the mass timber where is that industry at like are you able to trace back your supply chain and understand this is where the wood is coming from and as a caveat for this i just i know that the european market is ahead of us and and i know people that have been importing mass timber from europe which seems really crazy, <laughs> um, but that's where the industry is at. And so I, I was curious where, where you see this, maybe from the Midwest of where you are and what you guys are doing to, to look at your supply chain. Yeah, so we do get, it's called chain of custody. And basically what that is, is you're able to trace the mass timber that's in your building, those what they're called as lamellas, but it's basically just a fancy name for a two by eight. And you're able to track all those two by eights back all the way to the forest. So basically everything from forest through the mill, through the manufacturing, through shipping, all the way to your site, which is pretty cool. It's awesome that we have that technology to do. But that is one way we kind of verify that the wood we're getting is properly forested and people aren't doing these huge clearings where you're just taking down a bunch of wood in a forest. 
And then the second way is, is through a certification body. So there's SFI in the U.S., there's FSC in the U.S. as well, and then there's a few counterparts in Europe that we require our manufacturers to get certified. So on, on one of our projects, we have a European manufacturer, and on another project, we're working with a U.S. manufacturer. But what, what we see is that you know mass timber in U.S. is relatively new, and so there hasn't been a ton of supply over the last 10, 15, 20 years, which is really how long you need to get the full supply chain up and running to accommodate these big kind of influxes of demand from uh, the buildings that, that we're building. And so our first project in Madison, Baker's Place, we had to go to Europe, mo- mostly because of cost. It was just way, way less cost to go to Europe, and it was cost prohibitive to stay in the U.S., and one of the kind of decisions for us was, well, what's the carbon effect? Because I'm sure people think, you know, you're shipping <laughs> a ton of wood from Austria to Wisconsin. That's got to be more carbon than buying in the U.S. But what we actually found was it was about equivalent. It was like diminishing of how the change was between a shipping container from Austria versus a truck from kind of the northwest region of bc and washington and so we looked at that and then we looked at the costs and it financially made more sense to go with the european manufacturers oh interesting yeah i I think that's a big question mark that that people have is like well you're just shipping wood from around the world you know what what's the carbon impact of that well let's pick this up around you're studying you know, what is more carbon efficient? You're putting together a thesis. The projects that you have, these are not small, small projects. From what it looks like, these are pretty substantial urban infill projects. What does it take to spin up a development company, especially headed right into a pandemic in 2020? A lot of questions around the economy, where that was going. Like what... What was this process for you, Nate? Yeah, I actually just got done reading. I don't know if you've read Elon Musk's new book, uh, his biography, but he said starting a business is like eating glass and staring into the abyss. And so I think uh, that quote is perfect for right now because the last three years has been tough, but I think rewarding. And it's been especially rewarding now that we actually have our first project going vertical and we're on our fifth floor and so it's been awesome to kind of see all these decisions and challenges that we've had over the last three years be now actually realized and we get to see a building actually be built but it's been an interesting experience because prior to this working on stick frame you know it was a relatively easy process because your architects know exactly what you're building your engineers are like hey we've done these details a thousand times and nothing's changing on this one. And with going into the space of mass timber and more sustainable projects, everyone was kind of like, what is this, you know, and and how do we design this and how do we actually build this? And fortunately we had a great architect. His name was Michael Green, who is kind of a, I'll say a God in the mass timber space, but uh, he's definitely one of the patriarchs of mass timber. And so he uh, really helped us through that learning curve of understanding what mass timber is and and how to use it. And we've had a good construction company as well that they just got off the Ascent project in Milwaukee, which is right now the world's tallest mass timber building. 
And so they also had some background and experience. But for the most part, the rest of the design and construction team didn't have that much mass timber experience. So I think the big one was just the learning curve there. And then the other big learning curve has been on the passive house principles that we're employing and understanding how to design these buildings and actually build these buildings so they are compliant with those principles and making sure that we don't have big holes in our envelope and we don't have guys going around with screw guns, screwing in little holes that we have these air gaps and the vapor barriers is uh, deteriorating. So I think those have been kind of the big challenges, but it's definitely been a rewarding process. So you've got, you get the design team that, that can come together. What does it look like to, to form a development company out of scratch? I mean, you've got to identify property. You've got to raise a tremendous amount of capital in this really capital intensive industry. You've got to get, I'm, I'm guessing, a really solid team of advisors around you. You've got to get marketing and, and branding. Like what, Really, in this business building process, what's been some of the big hurdles for you and maybe what's yeah. been really easy uh, that you thought might have been a bigger hill to climb than it actually was. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking through the process. So I think it was kind of, you know, we we're building a company, but also in parallel, we we're building a building. And so when we started, it was like figuring out how to build a website, how to do our branding, how to buy the site, which was a, a challenge um, the site was an old bakery building in Madison, and that was our first project. And we've had a few others after that, but I'll walk you through that one because it's probably the most interesting. But we basically went out and looked for different sites. And there was this guy who had bought the site and really was just kind of an opportunistic guy. And he's like, this is a good location of Madison, Wisconsin. And this is definitely going to be developed. So I'm going to buy it and try to sell it for a premium. So at the onset, he was like pretty high in his price. And we were like, this is not going to work. <laughs> no way. But then with COVID, and this was like back in 2020, where everyone was still a little unsure where the economy was going, he uh, kind of got more and more relaxed. And I think he just kind of saw the headwinds of the economy coming at him and said, okay, let's, let's do this. So we were actually able to secure a 15-month purchase agreement, which was an option to purchase. And so it was, you know, perfect for a startup company because it was, we don't have $5 million to buy a piece of land. We, we barely have a million to keep the lights on. And so we were able to do that. And then through that 15 month period, go through entitlements with the city, which the city of Madison is typically really difficult to get entitlements, but they really actually were super excited about our project and the sustainable aspects. And we flew through plan commission, urban design and common council. And then we started financing and went out to the capital markets and went to try to find partners. And this was like end of 21, early 22. And so the economy was kind of starting to have cracks in it. And capital markets were kind of saying, well, we're thinking about pulling back here. So we actually came up with a kind of innovative approach to capital raise, which was to go out and get retail investors to invest. And so we went out and got 160 retail investors to put anywhere from 25000 to a million dollars in and then had a um, 
lender from Arkansas come in for the senior and then a lender from Chicago come in for the mes. And yeah, we're able to close everything up in 2022 and get started. And so you're able to do a, a project-based fund. That That's a lot of people, 160 folks. <laughs> for sure. It's been been great to manage. So I get to call each one once a year and talk to them about their investment and how they're impacting the community. But it's, it's actually been quite rewarding as well because they a lot of the folks are in Madison. And so they drive by the site and they'll text me pictures and they're like, excited about the project and it's not just like we have this big fund from new york or la or or chicago giving us 30 or 40 million bucks to build a building it's actual real people that are excited to see a, this thing go up and kind of our cheerleaders alongside us yeah I, i'd like to talk a little bit more about this because there's this theme that i'm really watching is community-based investing uh, and it and it's starting to build of more people that are looking to strengthen their local economy, to develop those personal relationships, and maybe it's uh, unsatisfaction with you know putting their money into a Vanguard mutual fund, or even with the financial advisor that again they're they're steering them towards these institutional products. Is there a, a theme or a pattern of characteristics of of folks that? Uh, you're working with that are your capital partners? I think it's kind of all over the map, to be honest. We actually tried to do this with our marketing team the other day is put together personas for like who our ideal investor might be. And there was a lot of personas. I think there was like seven altogether. And obviously you kind of have your traditional retiree who is looking for a diversification of their portfolio. They want to do real estate. They don't maybe want to do a Vanguard fund or a Blackstone fund. and They want to do something more local. So we have a lot of those people, I would say. But what we're starting to see as well is one of the ways we raised all the capital on Baker's Place is we actually found a wealth advisor to partner with. And he basically was like, I really want to have a way to diversify my client's portfolio was something outside of, you know, your traditional stocks, bonds, or REITs, uh, which REITs is real estate investment trust. And so he was like, I'd love to be able to try to figure out how to invest my client capital into your projects and have that be a diversification vehicle, but also a way for our clients to get more engaged in our communities. Um, so he, he actually raised a lot of capital for our first project, and he's now doing it again, on our second and third. And so that's been a great kind of partnership that we've had and a huge success. So that's that's kind of another bucket. A third bucket is we're finding that there's a lot of these kind of, I think the word we use for the persona was techie. And it's basically the, the person who's working in a high paying tech job, which in Madison, we have a big uh, kind of tech healthcare it's called Epic and then Exact Sciences are the two big ones. And so it's someone making a high six-figure salary and they're interested in investing in something that's more sustainable, local, that they're able really to touch and feel. And then the fourth one is just kind of your your middle-aged guy or, or gal who's uh, been kind of just saving up over their lifespan and they want to have 10 or 20% of their portfolio in real estate and 
they'd rather have it with someone that they can go meet with instead of just a, a stock or a, a read. What it, and this is not, we're going to try to steer clear of all SEC regulations right now, but um, this isn't promotion. This is really just trying to understand like what, what attracts them? Like what kind of target returns do you have that, that you're putting out to these potential investors? How long is their money tied up for? How do they get it back? You know, just, like those those types of questions that I'm sure retail investors, if you get 160 of them, you're getting these constantly whenever you're raising money. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I I think I can talk about this. Maybe I should have my my lawyer review it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I think where most of them have asked, like, hey, what are my returns going to be? They're almost all focused on what is the like overall IRR. And I think the reason they're focused on that is because this money is in their like retirement accounts, basically it's in their savings. And so they're not focused on like, Hey, I need this amount of cash flow, and I need it every single year. Right? Like it's not an annuity and everyone is totally understanding that. And basically what we're competing against is their traditional kind of portfolio of like 80, 20 stocks and bonds which is usually yielding like seven to 10%. I think most people right now are seeing probably seven or even lower. But um, right now, what our targeted average IRR is, is anywhere between 14 and 17% IRR. And then that depending on when we exit, which is typically around seven years, we're right around a two to 2.5 X multiple. And that's been really what people are looking for which obviously it is because we got 160 investors. But I think that most of them are kind of seeing it as two things. One, they're able to have a positive return on their investment. But two, they're able to actually feel good and get excited about what they're investing in. And so I think it's kind of both. And I actually think they're probably even willing to take a little bit less in return because of that, that second element. This is great to have a finance background on, on the show. I have a, an, a degree in finance as well. And I forget sometimes that there's a lot of jargon within this part of the industry. And so I, I just I wanted to, to really drill down on um, 14 to 17% IRR and a two to two and a half uh, multiple. What, what does that yeah. mean for really the, the layman that finance is more like a foreign language than English? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I did use a lot of jargon there. Uh, IRR stands for internal rate of return. And then equity multiple is basically just the multiple you get from your initial investment. So if you're investing 100,000, and we say there's going to be a two to 2.5x multiple at the end, and that includes all distributions. So all cash flow you're getting back from the whole period. So for that seven year period, plus what you're getting at the end from sale. And so basically, if you look at equity multiple, and if you're at a 2x multiple, then what you invest on day one of 100,000 over that lifespan of the project plus the sale, you get to 200,000 by the end. And so that's that's kind of what we're targeting is between that 2 to 2.5 for all of our projects. And our goal is that we don't do a project unless it hits that. Um, mm. For for internal rate of return, that is basically measuring what your percentage return is every year. 
And the reason this, this metric was established was basically to compare different asset classes so that you could compare a real estate development like Baker's Place to a stock like buying Ford or a bond like buying T-bills. And you could say, okay, what is the internal rate of return for each one? And what is my risk-adjusted return based on the risk? So obviously, T-bills are, are probably least risky because you get the United States to back you. Ford is, is probably relatively risky, maybe equally as risky as a development. And then a development has a certain risk that maybe is correlated or non-correlated to stocks or, or other assets. So the reason we have this metric called IRR, internal rate of return, is to compare our portfolio's returns to each other without it being the same asset class. Yeah, thanks. That, that was a very eloquent way to answer that. Um, well, let's go into, you know, from the numbers into the the building and, and what that really looks like, because I know that uh, sustainable communities is, is a focus that you have. And so are, are these mixed use, are these multifamily, are the condos, like what is the building and operations look like? Yeah. Yeah. So all the buildings right now are mixed use. Typically either we're designing or the city is requiring us to have retail on the ground floor. We're designing some of that in without the city requirement, just because we want to have this really kind of cool entrance environment where we have a cafe and mercantile space and lobby all combined into one. Because one of the theses we have around just living not outside of sustainability, just kind of living is if you can have some of your main necessities where you live, it makes your living experience so much more pleasant because I don't know about you, but I forget eggs all the time at the store. And so if I can walk downstairs and grab eggs for my cookies or or pancakes in the morning for my son, it it makes my life a lot more enjoyable. And so our, our goal is that we have this kind of entrance environment where it fosters both connection for people, but then also a, a mercantile experience where people can go grab their daily necessities. But yeah, all the projects are retail. Some have a little bit more than others. And then all everything else is apartments and they're for rent apartments right now. Uh, we haven't kind of broken into the condo space, but I think one of the things we're going to talk about in a little bit is our new project that we have called Vanilla. And eventually we want that to be a condo. Uh, we're starting with apartments, but we're hoping to transition into condos. But uh, yeah, condos are a little bit more challenging for us, just given the long liability tail on them. Is there emphasis on on the type of retailers that you're trying to curate the space with? Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're trying to do 100% local. So no big box, no kind of like Starbucks coffee shops, um, no banks, Everything that we want on the ground floor is for people to interact with. So restaurants, bars, boutique retail, clothing stores, bakeries, things like that. And our goal is to get 100% local to really kind of foster the community environment. How do you get them on board? I mean, you're working with local entrepreneurs. Um, Is there any consideration around like concessions or incentives to or or even just like building that momentum and the excitement around a project what what does this look like yeah one of the things that we found is a lot of local entrepreneurs they're local entrepreneurs for a reason they don't have big 
VCs, venture capital that backs them or private equity shops, or they're not really big corporations. So they don't have these like big lines of credit or millions of dollars in their bank account to put towards a build out. And so typically when you have a new development, you're paying, you know, anywhere between a hundred to a million dollars, depending on the space for a build out. And so one of the things that we've done in our, in our budget, in our performa is have a little additional capital for us to pay for the majority of those boutique retailers and local restaurants and local retailers build out so that it's really just, they have a turnkey space that they get, they design it the way they want, and then they're just paying the rent, just like they would be at a warehouse that they're renting or industrial space or an older retail shop. And that's been the big key right now for us to attract some of the kind of local mom and pop shops. Mm -hmm. Nice. And on the apartment side, is there any mandates or uh, thinking around inclusionary zoning or affordable homes for rent? No, not right now. Our idea with Vanilla is to incorporate a little bit more of that. But with our larger projects and kind of our mid-rise slash high-rise product, we've done a big array of units. So we have micro units that are 500 square feet, all the way up to penthouse units that are 1,600 square feet. So within that range, there's a big kind of rental range, but we don't have like any designated inclusionary zoning or like low income within our project right now. Hmm. You've been talking about Vanilla. What what, what are the yeah. names of, of the projects? And I'm curious, like why, where did Vanilla come from and what's the story behind that? Yeah, I've been, I've been trying to hype it up. Neil. Uh, but yeah, so Vanilla came from basically just a sit down that me and our chief product officer had uh, over non-alcoholic beers, actually. Um, Heineken Zero is best. But we were like thinking through, you know, how do we see neutral and how do we want to progress the company forward? And we came up with this idea called the Urban Creamery. And what the Urban Creamery is, is basically three different product lines. So we picked our, our three favorites ice cream flavors. And, and don't ask me why. It was just kind of one of those ideas you have over non-alcoholic beers. This um, is a Midwestern thing, too. I, I love this dairy. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, <laughs> Wisconsin's the dairy state. So you got to do something around ice cream um, or milk. But yeah, so anyways, within the Urban Creamery, we have three product lines. Uh, Low-rise is vanilla, mid-rise is strawberry, and high-rise is chocolate. And if you don't like those flavors, that's okay. Um, but we are starting with vanilla. And basically what it is, is it's a, a system that's componentized for building is the easiest way to describe it. So we are designing different components. So like a wall or a bathroom pod, or a structural system. And we're going to be able to use those components over and over again so that when we start a new project, we don't start from scratch. And, and I think maybe I should take a second to describe this because some of your listeners might not know the full process. But when you start a new development and you buy a site, which is just maybe an old building that you're going to take down, or it's just a blank site, like a parking lot, you have no plans like zero plans, you're starting from scratch. It's like starting a, a paper or a thesis and you're looking at a blank slate of paper. Like that is what we look at as developers and architects and engineers. 
we have zero plans. We're not using old old details or old plans to conform to this new site. And we've looked at that process as a team and we've said this this seems a little bit redundant and a little bit ancient because it's like, why are we redesigning buildings that we've kind of already built in the past? We're just having to adjust for new site parameters, new zoning, new new height, new massing. And we've said, okay, well, could we just take some components that we've used that we have in this library and reuse those components and modify them for these more site-specific things? And so that's that's kind of the impetus of vanilla and the urban creamery. And we're starting with the low rise and we're going to move our way up to high rise. Um, but the idea is that basically we have this library of com- components that's ever growing and those components are going to be reused on every single new project so that we're not having to go through this blank slate again. We have kind of this set, set, set idea of like these components we know work, they price out, they structurally make sense. We can erect them really easily. The construction team likes them. And then we're just going to reuse those components over and over again. Uh, that's interesting. And so you had, you had talked on this this part around um, circularity and, and life cycle. Where are you really pushing for that? Yeah, so that's one of the things we're working on as part of, part of this concept is right now uh, we have to run a life cycle assessment on every single one of our projects to actually quantify the embodied carbon impact, which we talked about at the start, which is the impact from construction. And basically what the LCA does uh, is it breaks down the building into constituent elements, kind of like these components, and it quantifies the carbon for each one, and then it builds it back up. And what we're going to be able to do with this new system with Vanilla is actually assign each component a impact with the LCA. And then when we reuse that component, we'll automatically be able to see what each building's carbon impact is without having to run all these calcs over and over again. So we're just getting more efficient there. And then the other thing we're setting with LCAs, uh, which we're working on with USDA, um, is looking at what is the life cycle assessment for mass timber, specifically for the end of life. Because one of the big things that we're trying to figure out as an industry is what assumptions can we make for these big CLT panels that go in buildings for when they actually get removed from the building? And do they get reused or do they go to be recycled? Do they go to be chopped up for pellets to heat homes? Do they go to just your kind of trash facility? And everyone has a different answer. So what we're trying to do is have some sort of standard that says, okay, this is what we can likely assume that the CLT would do after it gets out of the building and then put that into our life cycle assessment. Are you doing these life cycle assessments voluntarily or is this something that is mandated right now? No, yeah, that's that's kind of like the whole thesis behind neutral was to do these LCAs and energy models to actually quantify our impact because if you don't have a tool, it's kind of like if you're playing football and you don't have a scoreboard, you, you would never know your score. And what we've been doing as an industry, and this isn't everyone, but the majority of people have been saying we're quote unquote sustainable without running LCAs 
or energy models to actually quantify how sustainable the buildings are. And so what we do on each one of our buildings through the design process and then through the construction process is run multiple iterations of the LCA, an energy model. And the LCA quantifies our embodied carbon impact and the energy model quantifies our operational carbon impact. And the two basically then will tell us what our total carbon impact is for both embodied and operational. And that's kind of like the, the core thesis behind how we're more, I would say, more sustainable than other development companies. Now, do you think that that's something is that's going to get wrapped into the regulatory framework within the United States that firms are going to have to be looking or conducting life cycle assessment analysis? Um, I haven't really seen it in like LCAs as far as regulation. It's in LEED. So if you have a building that's LEED certified, they likely had to run an LCA. Um, where we're starting to see it, which is awesome, I think we need to see more of it, is on the energy modeling side for the operational carbon impact. And what we're seeing there is there's this new program called the 179D. And basically what it, that is, is you get a tax credit for each, I think it's BTU that you're saving from your energy model. So basically what the federal government has you do is it has you run an energy model and they say, okay, what is the actual savings of energy that this building is achieving versus kind of just like a code compliant traditional building? And then they give you a tax credit for that building based on that energy model, which is great. I think it's really good. So I, I think we need to see kind of more of those policies and incentives come out specifically on the LCA side so that we're starting to also reduce the embodied carbon. Mm. If you're to compare one of your projects to a design that it would be the same aesthetics, height, you know, apartment size, things like that. How does that stack up with mass timber versus steel and concrete yeah so baker's place the first project we did we were on the lca side at a 42 percent reduction from just a kind of code compliant traditional building and on the operational side we were just under 50 percent. i think it was like 49.4 or 5 um and that was kind of for me a little bit disappointing because it was like at the onset I was like super excited. I was like, we're going to hit zero and it's going to be great. And one of the things I found out and one of the big challenges I had was we can hit zero as of today with the technology and materials we have. That's no problem. The issue is we can't hit zero and hit a financial model that makes sense because those materials that are going to get us to zero are just so much more cost that both our investors and the banks are like, this building just doesn't make sense. Like it's not going to yield a return. So the big challenge we had was figuring out kind of this dichotomy between how far can we push on the sustainability front while still making sure we get to a 14% or 15% IRR for our investors. And so that's where we the results on Baker's is, is directly from that problem. Um, on our next project, our goal is that we hit above 50% on the LCA and above 55% on the energy model. And then 
our goal is every single project we kind of iterate and we have this kind of long-term goal of getting to zero. But I think it's going to be a bit longer just to have the technologies advance, to have more materials, more suppliers come with these low carbon impact materials. Yeah. And and for the listeners out there, I really want to underscore this is this is the frontier of the real estate industry, in my opinion, that as we've mentioned, it is a very capital intensive industry. We do have incredible leaps in technology that's going on right now. Uh, but there's this real tension of how do you attract what what makes a project viable and how do you meet that with the technology and and even on you know a, a home project, I'm like we should we should be able to go 100% solar on this. And then you realize what you actually have to do to get to 100% solar, and it's like you can get 85% of the way there, but the difference between the 85 to 100% is a lot. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm really excited to to be here at this point in time as Nate, you're you're doing your thing. You're, you're really looking at like, how do we, how do we get better and how do we improve? And so many other people are doing that as well. One of the last questions that I have for you, Nate, while you're at this point in time, and I'd love to have you on once, once these things are actually completed and you've got certificate of occupancy, but let's talk about the neutral project name. Uh, what, where did this come from? Yeah. <laughs> so the name was basically from the thesis and the thesis was basically Let's figure out a way to reduce carbon, both embodied and operational, in the built environment and get to neutral and get to basically somewhere where we can be fully sustainable. And so the idea is basically that we are called the neutral project because we're kind of in this constant pursuit to neutral and it's always a project. And so every single development we have, our goal is that we iterate. And we get closer and closer to that kind of long goal that we have in the distance of getting to a fully sustainable, fully neutral building. Mm. Okay, that that's interesting. What the follow up question to that is? There's a lot of conversation going on between sustainability versus regeneration, and obviously, this is the, a regenerative real estate podcast. Um, do you have any thoughts around kind of where? where the conversation is going in, in terms of sustainability, uh, doing less bad and regeneration, doing, doing good, quote unquote. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think like the most sustainable thing is like regenerative, to be honest. I mean, if I think just about our forests, like the best thing for the forest right now is to have regenerative forests and to have people foresting those forests to have softwoods to be on, 40 to 60 year life cycles. And so I think if we can be both sustainable from like the traditional lens of trying to reduce carbon emissions and other emissions, and at the same time, regenerative, that's going to be the best for our ecosystem long-term. So I, I, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't think like there's a tension between the two. I think the two are so interconnected that we need both. Hmm. Yeah, I I think this is this is another area that you know we have a, a framework called the Roots of Regenerative Real Estate, and that's really around health and wellness, sustainability, community, ecology, and the spirit of place. But sustainability is included in there quite intentionally, and I think this really speaks towards 
one, a lot of people are asking, like, where where's a regenerative building? Can you show me an example? Like, you know, there, uh, as as a mentor of ours named Bill Reed from the Regenesis Institute, really likes to underscore, like, there's no such thing as as a regenerative building. Regeneration is embedded within living systems and communities, and and really sustainability and, and like trying to reduce emissions. Uh, this is an iterative process, as you are an example of with the neutral project. That it, it's not just like we're going to snap our fingers and all of a sudden um, our buildings are, are carbon sinks and uh, we're able to to just overnight make a, a complete switch. Um, so I, I do think that sustainability and regeneration are are intricately linked. As and as much as people went to debate that or maybe just have a healthy dialogue around that i think that's what we're doing now um when yeah. what are you really yeah do you want to do you want to jump on on that train before we no we well it station? just made me it made me think about um we are going through like how do we define sustainability as a company and we've been it's been an eight month long project because it's been difficult for us to say okay what aspects of our projects are sustainable and it's like we want all of our aspects of our projects to be sustainable, not just from like looking at the LCR, looking at the energy model and monomaniacally looking through those lenses and saying, OK, well, we did great on the LCA and we did great on the energy model, but the environment that we built is not great for the residents. And so are we sustainable from that perspective? And if we if we don't look at that, then probably not. And so what we've defined sustainability is, is basically looking at it through three lenses. And the first is community and trying to foster great spaces and inviting spaces to pe- for people to live in. The second is buildings. And so how do we actually build sustainably using kind of the LCA and energy model like we've discussed as kind of our framework to do that. And then the last is how do we have sustainable investing? And that's really for the investors that are putting their hardworking cash into our projects. How do we make sure they're getting a good return so that they can live longer and have great lives? And so um, I think that's interesting. Your definition of kind of regeneration also combines with our definition of sustainability. Nate, if you had a crystal ball, let's say, let's look out five years. What are you really excited about right now? Man, that's a great question. I haven't gotten that question. I should ask my employees that question, actually, at their yearly appraisals. What is your crystal ball? Uh, well, I would love to have a crystal ball. I'll say that. Um, but I think what I'm most excited about is really just seeing a neutral project grow. We just Last year, we had three employees, and now we're up to 12. Um, and so what we can do with 12 versus three is exponential. Um, And so it's been really exciting just to see kind of like-minded people come together and look at this problem that we have and figure out how we can solve it and what the solutions are. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see our project in Milwaukee, which is going to be record breaking for the world's tallest mass timber building uh, get built. And then I'm also excited for, our vanilla project, which I think is really going to help address kind of the affordability issue we have in the U.S. and the the missing middle problem, um, start really growing and expanding both in Madison and our goal is to go into other markets. So looking forward to those two things as kind of mm-hmm. 
five-year plan. Well, whenever you throw your ice cream social for the open house, uh, I would love to be there. <laughs> I will send you an invite for sure. Uh, Nate, this has been a pleasure. For people that are looking to find out more about the Neutral Project, maybe they just want to follow along or maybe they are interested in in participating in one of your projects. What's the best way that people can either find more information or get a hold of somebody on your team? Yeah, we've made it super easy. You can go to our website, theneutralproject.com, and you can either hit the chat bot and one of our team members will respond in five minutes because we've mandated that they have to respond in five minutes, or you can uh, hit the contact form and we'll get an email and we'll follow up with you. But yeah, I'd love to talk to your listeners. Excellent. Well, Nate, good luck with the projects and thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. If you want to follow our work at Latitude, you can follow us on Instagram at latitude.regenerative.re and mine is at I am Neil Collins. We inherently believe in the potential that comes from connecting value-aligned and purpose-driven people together in community. That's why I encourage you to join our mighty network and introduce yourself to the other people working across the globe to advance a more regenerative, resilient, and beautiful world. Here, we want to know what you're working on and what inspires you. Through this platform, you can attend live events, take courses provided by our podcast guests, and create connection with other people and businesses that share your same passion. To join, find the link in our show notes or visit our website at ChooseLatitude.com. If you'd like to support the show, please share it with your friends and be sure to follow us on your podcast app so that you always have the latest episode downloaded. Another way to support our regenerative field building is to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Positive ratings help attract amazing guests, and they can be the deciding factor for someone else to tune in and listen. And who knows? Maybe this is the kind of motivation that it takes for them to finally decide to align their profession with their sustainable and regenerative values and become a positive force for good within their own community. This show was produced by myself and edited by Anthony Wallace and offered as a part of our work with Latitude Regenerative Real Estate.